Hello everyone, we hope you're all keeping well. Welcome to this latest instalment of GTR's podcast series. I'm Jeff Ando, Content and Production Director of GTR. And for this episode, we should be drawing on a recent conversation with Rajiv Biswas, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific and IHS Market, focused on the impact of recent disruptions to trade and supply chains in East Asia and beyond. Uh, Rajiv, I guess the first thing to ask is, where to from here? How do you assess the risk of financial crises arising due to the many economic shocks seen across the world economy? I think that is the, you know, very important risk factor now that as these lockdowns stay in place for longer and longer, the distress to the corporate sector and to households is intensifying. And you see that for households in rising unemployment levels in the U.S., dramatic increases in unemployment which has risen by over 20 million people within a matter of weeks. Uh, in Australia, for example, unemployment has also risen by almost a million uh, since the middle of March, which is a huge number for their working population. Um, and you see that, of course, in Europe as well, with many different industries hit. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, sectors such as oil and gas are taking devastating hits. Uh, airlines, uh, some parts of the tourism sector, and retailing also in many areas being very badly hit. So this has consequences for corporates, and that translates into financial stress. And also, eventually, if the lockdowns continue for much longer, would also affect banking sector balance sheets and will have insolvencies. I think the Virgin Australia uh, moving into administration was a very big red flag about how this will happen elsewhere in other uh, industries around the world. So I think that is now a great risk that unless countries can move into an exit strategy once they get their cases under control relatively soon, uh, otherwise the, the escalating consequences can become more and more uh, serious and can result in stress. It, uh, Turkey, for example, already had high levels of external debt, a lot of exposure to foreign currency borrowing. You know, as the uh, crisis affects them, if the lira keeps falling, you know, their economy uh, could be subject to a lot of stresses, and their banking sector in particular. Um, has a lot of exposure to foreign currency loans. So, you know, that is one of the banking sectors which could face stress conditions. Many emerging markets, which are heavily dependent on exports of raw materials, for example, oil and gas, are, of course, very much exposed to this kind of macroeconomic shock with slumping world oil prices and take hits to their um, banking sectors and broader economies. So a lot will depend how quickly the lockdowns can be eased. I mean, a lot of this damage is due to the lockdown um, rather than just purely the pandemic itself. So it's really when the governments can start to move out of that. And we're starting to see that happen in Asia. As I say, it's very, very important what's happening in China, that uh, mainland China is now pretty much out of lockdown in most parts of their economy, and they're showing very steady recovery. Hong Kong also in terms of domestic economy, and also Taiwan and also South Korea, already well on the way to domestic 
normal conditions, even though their export economy will still be very badly affected. That, that, that actually takes us to the next question, which is regarding lockdowns. I think there's quite a few people tuning in from the UK, and it's been a real topic for conversation in the news this week in, in the UK and across the world. But how long do you think the global, the complete lockdown globally of many major economies in Europe, in markets like the US, the Asian markets that you've referenced, can continue with unemployment soaring and debt levels just continuing to rise? I think the stress is, is immense. Uh, for example, in the UK, uh, there's been very significant increases in government debt to GDP ratios that have been estimated that the measures already taken by the UK government to support wages and to help corporate sector and other stimulus measures you know, will push government debt to GDP close to 100% of uh, GDP, perhaps even higher. Um, and that's just within the time frame of you know the existing measures. If the lockdown has to be longer, they're going to have to do more to support companies, to support the unemployed, and the costs continue to mount. Uh, and of course, the UK is just one country. Many, many countries have thrown 10 to 20 percent of GDP in terms of government fiscal spending at this to try to mitigate the shock. So the ability of governments to sustain that kind of fiscal spending without bankrupting themselves is you know, very limited. Many countries entered this crisis with very high levels of government debt to GDP. The OECD countries, particularly the US, UK, many of the European countries like Italy already had extremely high debt levels. So this is just loading debt even higher. Um, so their ability to sustain that, I think, is, is limited. Some countries are in a better position where they did have a better fiscal starting point. But nevertheless, you know, this one episode, just one year of deep shock is going to completely derail the fiscal balance sheets of many governments that were in better position to start with. So, the, you know, the consequences of this are going to be far beyond just the, this year as governments need to try to restore their balance sheets over time. It'll take a decade, assuming they don't have other shocks, you know, that there's not another pandemic coming around the corner. We can't say. I mean, we've, we have seen outbreaks within the last 20 years that were contained, that didn't escalate, luckily didn't escalate like this. But we don't know how, whether this sort of thing could happen again. We cannot assume it's one in 100 years because we've had a number of similar outbreaks that managed to be contained just within the last 20 years. And if the governments have no capability to respond to that shock or other kinds of economic shocks that might occur, more conventional economic shocks, then obviously the world economy could be in a very dangerous situation where monetary policy has been expended. Now, you know, we're back to situations where most of the major central banks have uh, either QE policies or interest rates at such low levels, they have no more ammunition. So they've got no more room to act. And fiscal policy, again, you know, they've used up a lot of their ammunition now. The ability to do this again anytime soon is very limited. So all of these things mean that you know, there's a lot of pressure on governments to move out of these lockdowns. For the moment, they're still persevering um, to try to contain the caseloads. 
but you know there's a limit how far they can do this without having unemployment cues like in the time of the Great Depression, and then no ability to continue to fund such high levels of unemployment because, as I said, you know governments cannot keep paying the salaries of you know half the workforce for any length of time. So I think you know th this lockdown situation cannot continue for very much longer, and governments have to find exit strategies out of it. Um, there's obviously different mixes of solutions that different governments are trying, um, but yeah, there's with mixed results. I would say it's clearly mainland China has done very well, South Korea has done very well, and then Greater China as a whole is pretty successful. We're seeing success in ASEAN. Um, but elsewhere, we haven't yet got to a situation where it's a clear victory, um, perhaps with the exception of Australia and New Zealand, where I do think they should be able to move towards relaxing their restrictions gradually quite soon. Yeah, I think the reference made uh, was uh, the idea of the, uh, you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease itself, although obviously that's that's something very different views people have. Uh, when it comes to exports and exporters, what do you see the impact of the global slump being when it comes to exports, and particularly those SMEs? Are we looking at a number of bankruptcies and insolvencies across the globe? Absolutely. I think, you know, in this situation where we have such a tremendous shock to the global economy and to world trade, you know, where the export markets in the US, Europe, Japan, and many other countries have collapsed because of the shutdown. Their industrial sectors are closed. They don't need raw materials. They don't need manufactured intermediate goods. And the consumers aren't able to go out. So even if they want to buy anything, they're not allowed to. So there's no demand for finished goods and services either. There's no tourism. So I think we're going to see a lot of insolvencies in SMEs who don't have the same kind of access to government support. Clearly, governments around the world are trying to provide assistance um, through various channels to help small business, but it's very difficult to direct that you know, at such a granular level for a government. Obviously, they use banking channels to try to do that, but between the big picture you know, provision of liquidity and the actual decision of financiers to provide it to the firms. You know, there could be delays, there could be uh, difficulties to do that. So I think we're going to face, you know, quite a wave of problems in the export sector and industry by industry. Uh, tourism, for example, you know, what is tourism? There's so many small operators, as well as bigger operators are airlines, which are going bankrupt. But the small operators, the very small tour operators, small hotels, they have no clients. So how long can they survive without um, you know, going bankrupt? I think you know, many of these, we're going to face waves of unemployment amongst the self-employed and small business operators in a lot of these industries. So it's a very grim picture for exporters right now. Uh, both for manufacturers and particularly, I think, for services in uh, areas like tourism. I think touching back on the issue of uh, well, starting with Asia as the starting point for this webinar, you referenced a few of the different markets and having different experiences and different approaches. Where would you see the success stories have been and, and which markets have really struggled? I know that you ran through some specific country examples, but maybe go into where you feel 
certain countries have responded better to this than others? Well, I think because of its size, you know, it's important to focus on mainland China because in all the gloom and doom, we shouldn't overlook that China's in the second quarter staging quite a good recovery. So I think for exporters, you know, China is still, you know, an important market. It's still showing, you know, I think, improving orders, as I showed you in those charts, that we're seeing quite a revival in industrial activity services as well. So we should see a return, if not to normal, but at least closer to normal purchasing activity in China during the second quarter. And it is the world's second biggest economy. So, you know, in a world of lockdown and very weak export orders in many different parts of the world, one source, I think, of positive momentum at the moment is China. Um, So I think that's one source of kind of positive South Korea domestic demand also will be better, but obviously the export sector will still be hurting. Um, so some of these Asian success stories where we're seeing them emerging from their domestic pandemics are probably you know, probably the best pockets of early recovery, I would say, for export orders, but not in the export industries. That, you know, For example, the auto sector, the auto export industries may still be struggling even if domestic auto demand starts recovering in some of these countries. And, um, you know, sector by sector, the experience will be different. But where you have strong domestic consumer markets in Asia, that's probably where you're going to see the best opportunities this year for exporting. So definitely mainland China, Taiwan's improving. You know, even Australia's domestic market in the second half might be getting better. Um, so I think we will see some more encouraging news, and Asia will be leading that, um, you know, particularly in the second half of this year. And then, of course, by 2021, we expect a much broader-based global recovery as the pandemic is contained um, through medical solutions. Fantastic. Well, um, as we know, this webinar is a joint collaboration between IHS and GTR. We've got a roughly split audience from both communities. And and those of you that know GTR and are regular visitor our website will see there's been lots of developments across trade. So so my next section is about trade. We've seen warnings from the WTO on trade volumes facing a drop of 32%, shocks on the oil supply and demand side, regulators warming of financial crime. We have also seen, uh, on a more positive note, a move towards more digitised trade as the lockdowns make it harder to process those paper-based transactions. So some trade-related questions for you, Rajiv. To what extent do you think the current situation demonstrates the importance of robust value chains? I think, of course, the first leg of this crisis was about the China shutdown. And at that point, you know, obviously the vulnerability of many multinationals to their China production was exposed when China was shut for very long periods of time. And so I think globally, the vulnerability of supply chains to China, you know, came under a lot of spotlight. So I think one of the outcomes of all of this is that there's further to go for many firms to reduce their vulnerability to to China in particular. But also what we've seen is probably an unimaginable disruption of global supply chains where, you know, even as China's come back, then you've got lockdowns across the U.S. and Europe and 
you know, other major countries like India, Malaysia. So such widespread shutdowns of industry are probably something that very hard to plan for in terms of supply chain diversification. Nevertheless, I think there will need to be rethinking of how um, supply chains are positioned, how inventories are managed. And I think governments are also going to play a more active role in some strategic industries. Clearly, medical supplies was one huge example of where supply chains failed very badly um, due to the pandemic because so much production was concentrated in China. So I think governments will be uh, taking action to try to reduce their vulnerability and to improve their inventories of uh, medical equipment in particular. Uh, but, you know, obviously there's other industries also where this kind of adjustment will be happening. So I think there's going to be a massive rethinking of supply chain vulnerability that will happen once this is all settled down. Right now, nobody can really do anything because you can't travel and you can't move anything anywhere. It's just not possible right now to realistically do much except to use existing alternative production facilities um, you know, where one country is shut down to shift orders to existing facilities elsewhere. But over the next five years, I expect a lot of repositioning of supply chains. And some of that may mean reshoring, you know, more production coming back closer to home for big industrial countries to reduce vulnerability. Um, and then, of course, in strategic industries, I do expect that some of the big industrial economies, in, uh, for example, the EU, I'm sure, will take action to ensure that they have more control over production of, you know, vital uh, medical equipment within the EU borders. With regards to China, I suppose that's an interesting question. But from a sort of geopolitical, geostrategic approach, do you see foresee a change in how people deal with China going forward? We've already seen that the, uh, the US trade war, the tariffs, rising prices for manufacturing in China had maybe started that trend already, but do you foresee that being something that continues in light of all this? I think that, you know, that there's obviously a very long-term global shift of economic power uh, and geopolitical influence um, that's already been underway for decades with the rise of China as a global economic power. So that was already very much underway um, you know, before the pandemic. So the pandemic is one relatively short episode. However, uh, traumatic it is for uh, many countries and the population of the world, the episode hopefully will end within this year. So I think from a long-term strategic perspective, it's probably not the huge disruptor of, of trends. But I think the trends are already there where you've seen the rise of China and the broader rise of Asia has also been underway for many years now. So projecting forward, not because of the pandemic, but because of trends that are already happening, I still expect to see China's rise continuing. We do expect China to be growing again by 6% next year. Um, over the long term, it's slowing down, but it still will emerge as the biggest economy in the world. Um, and then India, although it's going to take a big shock from this current recession, you know, again, over a decade ahead and beyond, then we should see that India and also Indonesia 
are going to become more and more important as large, rapidly growing consumer markets. So these long-term trends, I think, although they may be disruptive for a short time due to this pandemic, the long structural trends are still going to evolve, which means the shift of consumer markets and world growth more and more towards Asia Pacific. Got a couple more questions before we get into the questions from our audience. Had a few come in, and thank you everyone for doing that. But um, I guess you mentioned about taking inventory. Do you feel that this has exposed flaws in the just-in-time inventory model, and how easy would that be to change? And secondly, would you expect concerns over increases in isolationist policies going forward, bearing in mind the huge expenditure from some nation states in in propping up their economies? Um. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen disruption of transportation systems in a massive way because of the pandemic, particularly air transport. So that has a huge impact on supply chain and delivery times. So a lot of the just-in-time delivery in certain industries was quite critically dependent on air transport. But because most airlines are not flying, although air cargo planes are still flying, a lot of air transport cargo movement is dependent on the capacity of cargo carrying within passenger flights, and that's just disappeared. So that has meant that freight rates for air cargo have soared. Um, and so that's creating problems, of course, and the capacity simply isn't there. So I think that's exposed a flaw in the just-in-time inventory system, where now you can't operate just-in-time if you don't have you know, the air connectivity and you have to then rely on longer shipping lead times or other forms of surface transport which are much longer as well so i think you know that vulnerability because i think nobody could have envisaged that no airlines will be flying and that some countries like india have no planes flying in and out at all in terms of passenger cargo transport even though air cargo just restarted so that kind of complete ban on Air cargo, I think, is really a huge source of uh, shock to the inventory system. And so I think, obviously, a lot of rethinking will have to happen about how inventories are managed. And on the subject of isolationist trade policies, do you, do you see that as something that um, will potentially become more of a risk? Well, I mean, if we're talking about the U.S.-China trade war, I think that those kind of underlying issues are still there. I mean, obviously, there's some kind of a deal. The focus is not on that right now, given the tremendous disruptions that have happened in the economy. But eventually, I think those agreements will still come back into play. And, you know, I'm sure that, country, that both sides will try to implement those. So I don't think that that's you know, change. It's just that obviously there's been a temporary massive disruption, which may affect the timing of when it's implemented, but the substance shouldn't change. Um, but I think trade frictions are there, obviously, in the global system. Um, and there will continue to be this struggle on strategic issues. So there will, I think, continue to be, you know, global competition um, in the area of trade and also in terms of investment I think that's also important, that strategic competition on investment um, and efforts by some governments to manage which sectors other countries can invest in are 
continuing to be an issue. So I think, you know, at the moment, particularly during the pandemic, when we're seeing massive um, shocks to different industries and some companies may be valued very cheaply, then some governments may prevent foreign takeovers uh, at this juncture because, you know, they don't perhaps want some of their key industries to be taken over at very cheap prices in a situation of financial distress. Um, so I think we could see governments preventing that kind of um, takeover activity, in, particularly in certain key industries at a time when um, evaluations may be very low for some sectors. Thanks, Rajiv. Um, now, we've been tracking the questions that have been coming in while I've been speaking, and a special thanks to all of those who've submitted. We've got around sort of 10 minutes left, maybe a bit longer, so we'll, we'll try and get into as many of these as we can. Our first question is from Mohamed Haq, um, and this is actually related to Africa rather than Asia, Rajiv, so hopefully you'll uh, be able to address. And why have we seen such lower numbers in markets like Africa? Do we think there's a lack of credible data due to limited testing in certain markets? Or do we suspect there's behavioural differences in the virus and how it reacts in, in different parts of the world? Mauritania, as an example, has claimed that it's uh, COVID-19 free. So do you have any views on that? Uh, it's a very important question because, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion among scientists and medical experts, as well as, you know, observers like economists and um, political scientists as to why the situation in developing countries seems to be better in many countries, not all, because obviously the pandemic emerged in China to begin with. But there's a various theories. And, you know, right now there's so many theories about how and why COVID is, you know, more intense in certain countries than others. And one theory that I've seen quite a lot of um, papers or comments about is the temperature issue that, it seems to be there's a band of countries in the colder climates which have had the higher you know, impact from the pandemic, which would then include China, Europe, and the US. So that fits that kind of theory. There's some recent theories that certain types of vaccinations like BCG vaccination, um, which is undertaken routinely in developing countries, may give some sort of immunity um, or at least reduce the impact or seriousness of COVID. And so then developing countries tend to inoculate their populations with the BCG vaccination, um, which is for tuberculosis, tuberculosis. Whereas developed countries, which kind of thought they'd eradicated tuberculosis and don't have very many cases, stopped using those kind of inoculations many decades ago. And so, again, there's a theory that maybe that could be it. But it's the, the evidence is still not there scientifically to, to prove that. So there's all these different ideas, you know, the why is it more prevalent in certain countries? Uh, and so then coming to the question of why are the cases still being reported as low in Africa? I mean, we have to recognize that probably Africa was later to get um, the inflow of cases um, than some of the other countries, and they did put in lockdown measures. So maybe the lockdown measures on air travel and so on helped because they were last in the queue to be getting these outbreaks. Perhaps it's also to do with these other issues about climate and so on. And then, of course, the issue 
um, about whether the health systems are really reporting fully. I think certainly there's a lot of expectation that the, there's under-reporting in India and Indonesia, which are also very populous countries. So the fear is that there could be more prevalent cases in, in Africa as well. You know, so there's so many theories, it's hard to really say, but you know, there's a lot of discussion about what could be responsible. And I think there's just as an active discussion, a very interesting discussion about what are the treatments. You know, there's a lot of discussion, um, including from President Trump, about the use of anti-malarial as part of the treatment, which seems to have been effective in a number of trials. So that's quite encouraging. And maybe because those kind of medicines are widely available in Africa, perhaps can also be deployed relatively easily to address those who do get new cases. And now there's another um, promising drug that's been available again for many decades around the world for uh, certain other types of diseases which may be able to be repurposed effectively for this. So, you know, those sort of things may also mean that if the African uh, medical system has already got these widely available drugs, they can use them relatively early on, having learned from the experience of the epidemics in other countries where they didn't know how to treat the cases. Great. Our next question comes from Benjamin Hadfield. It's a good one here, actually. You mentioned about the disparities in how the various economies are handling the lockdown. Singapore and New Zealand looking to bring case numbers down to zero. On the other end of the scale, you have Sweden taking more of a herd immunity approach, which was, of course, something that was at one stage being suggested here in the UK as well. Um, how do you expect these different approaches to impact on things like business travel and tourism if you've got different parts of the world at different stages of a lockdown. Is, is that something that the, the system can cope with? That's a crucial question because so many countries in the world are very dependent on tourism. Um, you know, many countries in Asia have a very high share of GDP due to tourism and especially international tourism. Um, and also that's the case in Europe that many countries in Southern Europe particularly have a high share of tourism in their economy, like Spain, Portugal, Italy. Um, so this is a key issue. When can tourism restart? When can the travel restrictions be eased? And I think we're going to see a staggered approach. So probably the front line of how this will be dealt with is going to be in Asia, where you get countries with very low cases. For example, Hong Kong SAR, which is part of China, has at the moment got restrictions on travel from mainland China to Hong Kong. So, you know, if cases are very low in Hong Kong and cases are also very low in China, you would expect that perhaps they can reopen those land borders between China and Hong Kong to allow tourism. That will be huge because tourism in, China, in Hong Kong is highly dependent on mainland China visitors, that's, you know, like 70% of their tourism. So if they allow that land border to reopen, that, that can immediately, you know, boost their economy and improve commerce because business travel can also restart, maybe only between China, um, Hong Kong, SAR, and then also Taiwan, which has very low cases. So you could get groups of economies which are, you know, in a similar situation of having pretty much contain their 
epidemics, and then they can begin traveling amongst themselves. The other hopeful thing for tourism is that in bigger countries which have domestic tourism, because in some countries like Thailand and Australia, domestic tourism is also very important. So once you've contained the epidemic within your borders, you can at least allow travel within the country. Australia at the moment doesn't allow travel between different states. Pretty much most of them don't allow travel. If that can be taken out of the restriction list, then at least domestic tourism can recover first. New Zealand also doesn't have many cases. So again, maybe travel between New Zealand and Australia can start. That's important for international tourism. So I think that kind of piece by piece reopening is how I think it can happen between countries that have kind of equivalent situations where they don't feel they're at threat by reopening their borders. So it's not going to be a wholesale global reopening. I just don't see how that can happen yet because everyone's in different phases. But a mixture of um, you know, free travel where you don't have any cases hardly at all, where you don't really need to have any restriction, you don't need to quarantine them because no tourist is going to come if they've got to sit in quarantine for 14 days on each side. That's silly, so that's not a solution. But you, if you don't have very many cases in either country, then you can allow that movement to begin on a case-by-case -case basis and then reopen domestic tourism. And then also you can open up travel for people who really want to visit but are willing to do a 14-day quarantine. So if someone wants to come for a one-month you know, visit to Thailand, well, maybe they're willing to stay in quarantine for two weeks and then they're free to continue for a longer stay. So I think that's how we can get back to international travel um, relatively soon, at least in the beginning. I think there should be room for those sort of things to start to happen. Um, but I'm speaking as an economist, and I think governments are being a lot more cautious than perhaps I uh, would hope. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's probably a behavioral science element to that as well, some interesting predictions and forecasts coming out off the back of how people are expected to respond to lockdowns being eased and how that behavior will change. Probably got just got time for two more questions. Uh, I've got a couple of good ones here for you, Rajiv. Uh, first one is, are we going to see a massive rise in inflation in the next 12 months to help erode the various debts that have been engendered? No, actually, we're going to see the opposite because of the massive downward slump in oil prices and the massive shock to demand, which means that you've got you know, more production than demand for you know, many different industries. That's why oil prices turn negative for only for a day. But you know, the concept of negative oil prices where the seller pays the buyer to take the oil is about the massive oversupply of oil. There's no demand. So that is why prices collapse. And it also applies to manufacturers that if you're producing cars or electronics and the consumers are all stuck in their houses, they might want to buy a car, but they can't go to the dealer uh, they can't go to the bank or whatever. You know, they, there's no point in them actually buying the good right now. So they, maybe they want to buy a TV because they want to watch Netflix, but that's probably about it. Uh, 
Netflix is now worth more than Exxon on stock market valuation. So, you know, there's some weird anomalies, but basically, fundamentally, you know, I think it's an issue where we're going to see weaker prices and, you know, possibly deflationary pressures in some economies because particularly of the collapse in oil prices and other commodity prices. Um, Yeah, so I think that's the bigger risk right now, at least in the short term. Longer term, you know, there's always been that concern that QE policies and, you know, the concept of governments printing money is going to be inflationary. But it hasn't turned out that way. When we look around the world at Japan, you know, where the BOJ has been financing, you know, government debt basically by buying all the bonds forever for decades. We don't have inflation in Japan. They have a demographic problem as well, of course. But, you know, elsewhere in the world and the other big economies through the global financial crisis aftermath, we also didn't see any upsurge in inflation. So I don't think that's the immediate risk of inflation. It's more about deflation, which is also a very dangerous situation. Deflation um, in a situation of world depression um, or at least deep recession is also very dangerous. So, uh, I think that's the bigger risk right now. Yeah, interesting. Funny you said about Netflix. I think someone was saying that uh, Disney's launch of its own channel couldn't have been better timed in many ways with so many children off schools and people at home. So there's definitely some businesses that are doing better out of this situation than others. Um, our final question, thanks again to everyone that submitted their questions. A nice, uh, easy one to see how optimistic or pessimistic you are, Rajiv. Do you expect a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped one in 2021, and that's on the basis that we'll hopefully see some sort of recovery. Yeah, that's the hotly debated issue amongst economists. Um, I think, you know, IHS market has a view we're expecting a more gradual recovery at a global level because of these deep shocks that have hit many economies and also the uncertain timing at which these lockdowns will be relaxed. So we expect a more cautious approach to relaxation of these lockdowns in Europe and US perhaps uh, in the coming months. So it's not going to be a dramatic lifting where everything is taken off at once. So that means the process of recovery is more gradual because by definition, as long as the lockdown measures are in place, it's slowing down the economy. These are the breaks that have put the economy into recession. So it's very much dependent how quickly is the foot taken off the brake by the government. And then the next question, of course, is how much destruction has happened to the corporate sector? You know, how much permanent destruction has happened to bank balance sheets around the world, which will also affect the timing of recovery? The longer the lockdowns go on, the more the demand is destroyed, the more corporate sector losses and insolvencies that you have and large companies failing um, and bank balance sheets deteriorating, the harder it will be to have a fast recovery. And then, you know, obviously the large numbers of unemployed may only gradually be absorbed back into the workforces. So there's also the demand side problem that the unemployed, you know, who may not be getting, you know, full support from government for long then have to find a job again. And so that's affecting consumer demand because there's still a high level of unemployment. So these things, I think, 
our brakes on the speed of recovery. Nevertheless, we do expect quite a strong recovery in world growth in 2021, and that the pandemic hopefully will be largely behind us by the end of this year. That concludes this podcast episode, which we hope you enjoyed. Please do listen up for further podcasts, including the weekly GTR News Brief, brought to you by GTR's award-winning editorial team. Until then, take care, and we'll see you next time.